This podcast is supported by Starglow Media's Mysteries About True Histories. From the creators of the hit top-ranking kids educational podcast in the world, Who Smarted, the Emmy-nominated Nat Geo Disney Plus's Brain Games and Netflix's Brainchild, comes Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as M-A-T-H, or math, in which kids ages six and up can hear humorous and educational stories that follow two best friends, Max and Molly, while they go on adventures through time, solving puzzles, hidden equations, talking about history, and making learning cool. Episodes transport listeners to moments in history like Pythagoras's ancient Greece, the era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England, and more. When I drive my son to school in the morning, we listen to these episodes that fit perfectly in our commute, with the episodes being about 15 minutes long. And this podcast is right up my son's alley because he loves to solve problems and happens to love math and the types of punny jokes that Max likes to tell. So tune in to Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. Welcome to Mom and Mine, a podcast about maternal mental health, from conception to pregnancy and postpartum. Real stories from moms and family members who have made it from struggling to wellness, and interviews with experts and advocates who work for moms and families to get the help they need. We discuss very real struggles that can sometimes be hard to hear, but these are stories that need to be told so that moms and families can know that healing is possible. This podcast is meant to offer information and awareness and is not a replacement for treatment by a professional. Thank you for being with us today. This episode touches on topics that may be sensitive for some listeners. Welcome to Mom and Mind. I'm Dr. Kat. We are very fortunate to have Kate Beatty with us today to share her experience and offer insight into some of the struggles that moms and families face but rarely talk about. Kate Beatty is a mom of three who was in the infertility trenches for three years before experiencing the joy of motherhood. Her journey led her down a path to adoption and later embryo adoption. Her experience with post-adoption depression after the arrival of her first son was a struggle she did not expect and certainly did not comprehend entirely at the time. She utilized all these experiences to help women on the same path through education and support. Kate is sharing her story with us today, and the hope is for moms and families to know that they're not alone and that they can reach out for support. So welcome, Kate. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. So um, let's just start uh, with your story, and um, please let us know more about your experience and, and what's gone on for you. Okay. Well, my husband and I were married in 2007. And at the time that we were married, I already knew that I had a diagnosis of endometriosis and that there was the potential that it would be difficult for us to have children. So Mm -hmm. we tried on our own for a while. And after about seven or eight months, uh, I went to the doctor and said, this is what's going on. And she referred me to an infertility specialist. And when we went, they said, of course, you're having trouble. You have endometriosis. This makes perfect sense. We'll mm-hmm. try IVF and you'll be pregnant in no time. Oh, so okay. we attempted IVF for the first time in 2008, just before uh, Labor Day. And unfortunately, we had a negative result, but mm-hmm. we 
did have some frozen embryos. So we attempted a second time in November of that year and I became pregnant only to miscarry a few weeks later, right before Christmas, Mm -hmm. which was horrible. Um, And we did go on to try again the following year. We attempted IVF another two times, both Mm -hmm. times unsuccessfully. And Mm -hmm. we also attempted, (laughs) for some odd reason, IUI, which normally comes before an IVF. Yeah. Um, which for those who don't know, IUI is intrauterine insemination, but the doctors mm-hmm. thought that there was a possibility that we would have success. And I also had a miscarriage after one of our IUIs. So um. <clears throat> yeah, we had, we had a lot of failure before we had success. Um, but I, mm-hmm. I decided at that time that we should take a step back and maybe look at the path that we were on. We went and met with an adoption attorney and talked to them about what it would take for us to adopt here in Georgia and what the cost would be and the time frame. And mm-hmm. at the time, it was just informational. We filled out some paperwork. We kind of talked to them about you know, what a profile would look like. And then we went on our way <clears throat> and we ended up actually going back to the doctor and doing some more testing and realized that there were a whole host of other issues at play that maybe we would be able to treat and maybe we wouldn't. So we thought, Mm -hmm. let's try and treat them and see what we can do. And Mm -hmm. if we can have a biological child, great, but we can, we can adopt. There's this possibility of adoption Mm -hmm. sitting back here waiting for us. So we did all these other treatments and testing and we even went to Mexico and had stem cell treatment there, which was, pretty intense and Mm -hmm. obviously required travel, which is difficult when you're already trying to time everything and go through Mm -hmm. IVF. But we did all that and we did another IVF cycle. We found that we had two embryos that were normal. We had the embryos tested with a procedure Mm -hmm. called CGH and that tests uh, all 23 pairs of chromosomes and can tell Mm -hmm. you whether or not the embryo is considered to be normal. So we had two normal embryos that we transferred in January of 2010. I'm sorry, 2011. And, and so how, how long have you already been on this journey by that time? This is three, three and a half years in. Okay. So we're at the three and a half year mark in January. We do the first transfer at that clinic that year, we're thinking, this is it, it's going to be great. And we had a failed cycle. And that was, Mm -hmm. that was it. That was the last cycle we were doing. That was fresh cycle number four, as they would call it in the infertility Mm -hmm. world. And we were done. We Mm -hmm. felt like we had nowhere left to turn. We weren't sure what options were available to us outside of, you know, another IVF that would probably just sink more money and have a negative result. Um, So all of this is incredibly expensive also. Yes. At that time we had probably spent, now mind you, we had, uh, we had insurance that covered infertility treatment, luckily. Oh, fantastic. Which is a very unusual circumstance. Right. And not to get into the nitty gritty details of it, but we had enough that we were able to cover four cycles, four fresh cycles. Um, wow. of IVF, which is amazing coverage. Mm-hmm. 
But mm-hmm. even with the infertility coverage, we spent probably in the neighborhood of $100,000 trying mm-hmm. to have our first child. So when that last cycle failed and every hope went down the drain with it, or so it felt, um, and I just, I felt very stuck and was not really sure what was going to happen. I knew we could try surrogacy, but I knew mm-hmm. it was exponentially more expensive. I knew that we could adopt, but I knew the process would be long and it would be expensive as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. I knew that we could attempt to use you know, donor eggs, but same thing. It's all more money, more money. And I just didn't know, you know where that money was going to come from or, right. or what the process was going to be. And I, mm-hmm. I, in my mind, I thought, I can't go through one more Christmas without a child. That cannot happen to me after I had just gone through one. So we were sort of in the process of figuring everything out when one night we got a phone call from the adoption attorney with whom we had met the year prior. Mm -hmm. And I had done some work with her through Resolve. And I thought it was rather odd that she was calling me on a Saturday night. So I didn't Um, answer. Sorry, go ahead. Can I um, have you explain to people real quickly what Resolve is? Sure. Resolve is the National National Infertility Association, and mm-hmm. they provide help to men and women that are experiencing infertility, which mm-hmm. m- my understanding is that number is one in six at the time of this interview. So one in six right. women in the country is experiencing infertility of some kind. Mm-hmm. And... They provide support groups. They provide online support groups. They do walks. They do educational programs. They really offer a lot. They do a lot of work with legislation to make sure the infertility mm-hmm. treatment is still available to people in every state in the U.S. Right. So it's a great organization. If you are experiencing infertility and you need help, this is the first place I would go is to resolve. Okay. This podcast is supported by Understood Explains. As parents, we are often having to figure out things as we go, and that is very true for our children's education. And to help you out, I want to tell you about a podcast called Understood Explains. This season is hosted by teacher and special education expert Uliana Ortube, and she discusses all the things you'd want to know about individual education plans, or IEPs, what they are, why they're needed, who benefits from them, and what to expect when you have meetings with teachers. I could have really used this podcast when my son had an IEP for speech when he was six. I was overwhelmed trying to understand the process and what everything meant. The episode on Understood Explains, Does My Child Need an IEP?, was the kind of info that would have really helped me get the most out of the educational support of the IEP for my son. And if you need that kind of support, I really recommend this podcast. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. Lynn, this time of year, parenting can be such a fluster clucks. You've come to the right place. I'm Lynn Lyons, and I've been treating anxious families for over 30 years. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law and co-host Robin Hudson. Join us for Fluster Clucks, a podcast for parents who worry. Wait, that's everybody. Yeah, these last few years have felt like one long anxiety attack for so many. Why do you think parents are always surprised that a podcast about anxiety relates to them, even if no one in their house has an anxiety disorder? Well, worry is human. Everyone does it. And anxiety shows up when we face uncertainty. 
All the parenting tips you've taught me have been essential. I love to break it down into skills we need to manage worry in our families. We've covered so many topics, depression, burnout, meltdowns, perfectionism. Don't forget scary mothers-in-law. Right, but of course that's not my mother-in-law. Because that's my mother. And a listener. As a psychotherapist, I like to teach parents and kids how to respond to everyday moments in healthy ways. Managing anxiety really can be taught. It really can. And I'll even tell you what to say. We talk about serious stuff, but without being too serious. Anxiety wants everything serious. Anxiety doesn't stand a chance when we're laughing, even about the tough stuff. I'll be sure to, to put them in the resource page. Uh, for this episode. Um, so uh, sorry to interrupt you, but it, that's a, an important thing for people to know about. Certainly. Um, so so your lawyer called you. Yes. Yeah, so she called on a Saturday night and I thought it was very strange and I didn't answer the call initially and let it go to voicemail. And probably 30 minutes later, I thought, oh, I should probably check and see what she wanted. Mm-hmm. And when I answered the phone or listened to the message, rather, she had left a message stating that there was Um, a woman in labor at a hospital locally, and she was interested in placing her child for adoption, but they did not have profiles of any families that they could present to her at that time. And so my husband and I had been contacted because we had explained previously when we'd met with them that we were interested in adopting a biracial child if the opportunity presented itself because we have a niece and nephew that are biracial as well. Mm-hmm. So they had contacted us as a result of that and said, Hey, we remembered this. Would you be interested in presenting a profile? And we said, of course we would. We didn't even hesitate. Mm-hmm. So we proceeded to put a profile together that night and they presented the profile to her the next day along with the profile of another couple or not a few other couples. I know at least one. And she on, I don't know if she chose us that Sunday, but that, that following Monday, I got a phone call at work saying, do you have some time to talk? And (laughs) her attorney and I said, oh my gosh, yes, I do. And she said, well, (laughs) you've been chosen. Oh, wow. And so we went from the very lowest of lows only yeah. a few weeks prior mm-hmm. to the very highest of highs that day. Yeah. Yeah. And that night we went to the hospital to meet our son. Wow. And yes. <laughs> oh, I have, I have chills. Oh. It was a pretty amazing experience. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we brought him home from the hospital that Thursday night. So three weeks prior, we found out or thought we would never have children it just didn't seem like a, a possibility to that very day bringing our son home from the hospital. And it was quite the roller coaster. Uh, wow. Yeah. Yes. Wow. <laughs> Such a short period of time. In a very short period of time. So mm-hmm. we were very fortunate that you know, his birth mother chose us to parent him. He's an amazing kid. She's an amazing person. Um, we immediately got along with her and her family. We had many similarities, uh, including having grown up in an area very close to one another, which was very ironic because we don't live in that same area now. So (laughs) it was, it was really an amazing experience. And I count her among my family. You know, we have a very close relationship with her and we feel very blessed 
to have her and her parents in our lives and to be able to continue contact with them, not only for us, but for our son as well. Sure. Yeah. So fast forward three years and mm-hmm. we had, um, we wanted our son to have a sibling and knew that probably IVF wasn't the answer. So we started to talk about adoption again. And I said, you know, one of the things that they said while we were going through infertility was that there was some issue with my body rejecting the embryos um, because of a, an immunological issue. Mm-hmm. And so in talking with my husband, I said, would you consider embryo adoption? And he said, well, I don't see why not. I said, I feel like the, the thing that I missed out on with adoption was not being able to be pregnant and, you know, care and nurture, care for rather, and nurture that baby for the first nine months of its life. So we went back to the doctor's office and said, listen, we're interested in embryo adoption. Um, And they very quickly said, oh, actually, we have an embryo that we think is a good match for you and your spouse. And so my son was, I guess it wasn't three years later. It was really two years later and it was about, uh-huh. he was about two and a half when we did our transfer, but my, my second son was three or my first son was three when my second son was born. Excuse me. Oh yeah. Gotcha. So they were born eight days apart in terms of birthdays. So I have a, <laughs> a February 6th baby and a February 14 baby. Wow. And yes. And so our second son came to us by embryo adoption, which is obviously very different journey from your standard adoption, mm-hmm. but really amazing nonetheless. Um, came with a different set of issues in the hospital than an adoption and a lot mm-hmm. of very curious questions from many of the medical staff, oh. um, which is an, another separate issue. And, right. yeah. <laughs> and, and then six months later, I discovered that I was pregnant naturally um, wow. which was a huge surprise to us because we really didn't think that we would ever have a biological child. And right. the biology piece of it is not important in the least actually to us is just that it was overwhelming that we had gone through so much only mm-hmm. to have a quote unquote surprise pregnancy after mm-hmm. all those years of trying and all of that interaction. So yeah. It was, it, it was an amazing journey. And my youngest son was born 14 months after the birth of my second guy. So wow. now the proud mom of three babies when I thought I would have zero. <laughs> so that's pretty amazing. I feel really blessed yeah. to be able to have any children, let alone three. And mm-hmm. I have three rambunctious boys to boot. So we <laughs> have a very, very busy household. Very busy. To say. And yeah, so that's how, that's where we are today. Three healthy, happy boys, very lucky parents, but definitely experienced a lot of ups and downs along the way. Sure. Um, so what happened uh, for post, the post-adoption depression? What was your journey there? How did you figure out what was going on? And, and with, which, with your first child? Yes. So after my son arrived, I obviously spent quite a lot of time getting my house ready, getting my life rearranged, immediately leaving my job. Um, mm. and, and well, 
for maternity leave anyhow. And things were very hectic initially. A lot of visitors, lots of friends and family calling. There was a lot of excitement and it was great, although very overwhelming and I was quite tired. Um, Mm -hmm. But as time wore on, the phone calls stopped coming, the people stopped visiting. And I realized that I was feeling kind of sad. And here I was with this beautiful baby that I had wanted all these years. And yet I just didn't feel like myself. I felt very isolated. I felt alone. And I didn't want to tell anybody because what would they think? You know, if I called my friends who were still struggling with infertility and said, hey, I'm not feeling like myself. I feel like I want to cry a lot. I feel like I'm trapped in my house, something's not right, I'm sad, mm-hmm. they would, I felt as though they would be upset because here I had exactly what they wanted. I was right. home with this great baby. I had all the things that I had wished for, and yet it still didn't feel right to me. And mm-hmm. so I didn't tell them. And my friends that had gone through a typical pregnancy, I didn't call because they thought, well, what will they think? Here, I, you know, I told them all when they were going through their pregnancies and everything was normal for them. And I was feeling very jealous, how horrible mm-hmm. that now I would call them and say, I don't feel like myself. I feel very mm-hmm. sad. And this thing that I wanted so badly now feels off. Something feels off. And um, so I just sat with it for a long time. And I finally actually had a conversation with someone that had adopted and it came up in conversation in a very strange way. We were talking about the baby and she was saying how cute he was and how exciting it was. And I started crying Mm -hmm. and she said, what's the matter? What's going on? And I said, I just, I don't know why I'm feeling this way. I'm so sad and I shouldn't feel sad and it's the wrong thing. And we talked about it and she said, no, 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 this is normal. You need to talk to somebody. You need to go see a doctor, you know, let them know how you're feeling. Make sure you talk to your husband. And I think she recognized the post-adoption depression, although she never put a name on it. Mm -hmm. And within probably six weeks or so, I actually started back to work. And I think that was for me, the main thing that helped kind of bring me out of the place that I was in and Mm -hmm. to help get me talking to people. It got me back conversing with other adults on a regular basis, which actually was very helpful, even though I didn't talk about how I was feeling. It Mm -hmm. got me used to talking to my friends again and being open and honest and having more conversations. And I felt a lot better where it was able to start to be able to confide in people and say, gosh, this is how I'm feeling. It doesn't feel right. I'm embarrassed. I'm feeling lonely. I don't know what to do. And by talking to other people, I was able to work through the issues that I was having. And thank God for all those people that listened. All right. Right. So at at what point did you understand that post-adoption depression is a thing and that that's what you were dealing with? I don't think that it was probably until a year later Mm -hmm. and I had seen some people posting about it in a Facebook group that I'm a part of. And Mm -hmm. I went, Oh, 
wait a minute, that I had that, that was me. Mm-hmm. And I recognized all the things that they were saying. And I saw that someone had written something about it. And I thought, oh my God, I didn't even know. It didn't even occur to me. I just thought I was having a hard time adjusting to being a mom. It didn't mm-hmm. occur to me that it had a name and that it was post-adoption depression. And now, of course, anytime I know somebody that's adopted, I make <laughs> sure I check in on them and talk to them about you know, what, I, what happened to me so that it mm-hmm. doesn't happen to them or if it does happen to them that they recognize it because I, right. I literally had no clue until a year later. And I wish mm-hmm. I'd known because I probably would have done more about it. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. Wow. Right. It would have so, been better more quickly. Throughout this process, through, through infertility, through adoption, through your pregnancies, did anyone ever talk to you about depression or anxiety during infertility or, or uh, postpartum or post-adoption? Yes. With the infertility, absolutely. It was talked about incessantly. Mm-hmm. They talked about it at the doctor's office. They made you meet with a therapist there. Uh, mm-hmm. I went to support groups. We talk, talked about it in the support groups and how infertility can be um, not dissimilar to having um, cancer or some other, you know, terminal illness where the levels of depression are so high amongst people experiencing infertility that mm-hmm. they know that this is a commonplace problem, which is why many of the infertility clinics make you talk to somebody 
at the outset of your journey. Before you begin IVF, you need to sit down, speak with a counselor, make sure that you're basically cleared for treatment. Although they wouldn't necessarily put that label on it. Mm-hmm. That's basically what's happening. So at the time, yeah, it was really drilled into my head that there was a high rate of depression associated with infertility and that anxiety was a big piece of that and that, you know, you should seek help if you needed it. And I did. Mm-hmm. I went to an infertility therapist on a mm-hmm. regular basis. I saw her once a week for a long time. She was a huge mm-hmm. help. The support groups that I attended were also a huge help for me because it made me feel like I was part of a group and there was a sense of belonging mm-hmm. instead of feeling like I was navigating this crazy journey all on my own. Right. There right. were other people going through the same thing at the same time. And they'd either had similar experiences or they could offer information. Say, I saw this doctor. I didn't like him. Mm-hmm. You know, I had this blood test. This was my result. Uh, there was, a, there were so many commonalities that it, it actually, actually made me feel a lot better to feel like I was part of the infertility community, so to speak, mm-hmm. rather than just being someone experiencing infertility. Right. Uh, so from that perspective, absolutely. But I never heard the term post-adoption depression until mm-hmm. I had literally had my son home for a year. And mm-hmm. it's possible that if we had had more adoption education prior to him coming home, that maybe we would have heard it there. Mm-hmm. Although even to this day, it's not a term I hear thrown around a lot. And right. I still see people posting in Facebook groups talking about, you know, not feeling connected, not feeling like they're bonding with their child, all mm-hmm. signs of post-adoption depression that they're not necessarily calling depression. Right. Wow. Um, so, right, you went through a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot for a pretty a long time. Yeah. Um, uh, and unfortunately, I mean, I'm so thankful for you for sharing your story and your experience, both with the infertility and the post-adoption and the embryo adoption, um, because these, these are things that are out there that for the most part, people aren't talking about unless, you know, they're in that world. Yeah. Um, and then we're all, we all get in that world by being in it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and you've been through so much and it sounds like now with some of the work that you're doing, uh, you're, you're trying to inform people and trying to be support to people. Can you, can you tell us more about what you're, what you've done and what you're doing in, in infertility and adoption? Sure. Well, I started doing work with Resolve many years ago when I first found out that we were going to have to pursue IVF to build our family mm-hmm. Because I thought, well, here's an organization that's doing something for people in my situation. I should basically give back. And so I started volunteering with them. I put together educational series on a variety of topics, you know, everything from just basic infertility all the way through adoption and third-party reproduction. Mm -hmm. Um, I organized walks to try to raise awareness of infertility. Um, and, and also simultaneously raise money for the organization. I led a support group, which was probably the thing that I I feel had the most impact, or at least where I saw the most impact because I was Mm -hmm. able to see what happened individually with people that came to my group where they came initially feeling very lost and alone and afraid. 
And those people, most of them left because they became pregnant or they adopted. So, you know, to see someone at their lowest low and then they leave your group at their highest high is really an amazing experience. So that was the support group was probably the thing that I felt had the most impact on the people around me and in turn the most impact on me because it made me feel like I was doing the right thing for other people. I was sharing the information that I had. I was making sure that they didn't feel lost and alone the way that I did at times. And then if I was able to stay connected with them after the group, um, then I was able to pass on my information that I had now about post-adoption depression and right. help them to make sure that they recognized it in themselves or even, you know, just postpartum depression. You know, mm-hmm. many of those women went on to have babies and plenty of them came back and said, I just, I don't feel like myself and I don't know what to do. I feel, right. I feel like a fraud because I went mm-hmm. to all these lengths to have a baby and now I'm sad. And right. that, those two things are very hard to marry if you've been through that experience right. Um, it, it's, it's so difficult. I can't even really describe the emotion involved with getting the thing that you've always wanted and then having this depression associated with it. Even saying it out loud, it feels wrong because I love my son so much and he made me so happy and mm-hmm. none of it is actually related to him. But when you say it out loud, it makes it feel like it's related to that child. And, it, right. and in fact, it's not. Obviously, I mean, if you do any research, you realize that it's about chemical imbalance and that there, it's, it's not about you and it's not about the baby. It's, it's, right. out, it's something outside of you that you don't mm-hmm. have control over. And mm-hmm. it's, it's an important message to share with people because it, it is very difficult to take that shame away. I'm still, you know, my son's five now. <laughs> I'm mm-hmm. five years out from that. And mm-hmm. I still have a hard time describing it without feeling a tremendous amount of guilt. Right. And I think that's such a big thing that, that wherever people are in the process and dealing with infertility or during pregnancy or postpartum or post-adoption, they're having any time of, um, of mental wellness, mental health complications. This guilt is overwhelming. It really Um, is. This, I mean, no one chooses to feel horrible uh, or horribly, nobody wants to feel the way that they feel. It's and like you said, it's hard to have these polar opposite things. Uh, you know, having the child you've always wanted, and then uh, however you're feeling afterwards, either needing some time alone, or feeling sad, or maybe even not feeling connected to them. Mm-hmm. It's it's hard to to understand how those two things can happen at the same time. Absolutely, absolutely. So you were talking about doing some um, education and support around adoption. What's happening there? So I felt like there was a need to educate nurses and doctors, especially on the delivery floors, about not just adoption, but also about third-party reproduction. And part of the reason that it came to me is twofold. First of all, when my son, my first son was born, and we went through the adoption process. When we were at the hospital, I didn't feel like the nurses were particularly supportive of either party while we were at the hospital with my son's birth mother. So I felt like they made her feel a little bit guilty for placing Mm -hmm. her child for adoption. 
And subsequently, they made myself and my husband feel like we were persona non grata in the room because they would not give direction to us. For instance, when my son was discharged from the hospital, they wouldn't give his care instructions to myself or my husband. They gave them to his birth mother. And I felt like that was, you know, it it, it was wrong on a lot of levels, but it was particularly painful because here is my son's birth mom, who's a wonderful person. She's made this choice for her child. It's an incredibly difficult choice to make. I don't know how she did it, but she did. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's basically like they're chastising her for making some, making a choice that they don't agree with. And so they're, they're, they're penalizing her for doing this while I'm standing there with an audience. Okay. And then in addition to that, they're not giving the appropriate care instructions to myself and my husband. So we're not allowed to ask questions. We're basically bystanders in the room. So you're sending me home with an infant (laughs) that Mm -hmm. I've had no preparation for, and I only get the care instructions that you provide in those two minutes to his birth mom, and I am not allowed to ask any questions. And to me, that felt, not only did it feel wrong, because it is wrong, Mm -hmm. but legally, to me, it felt like they were doing themselves a huge disservice. Because yeah. you have this baby going home with a family that obviously wants to care for them and do the right thing, but right. we don't even know what we're supposed to do. I mean, they're talking about care of circumcision. Well, if I had a question, I wasn't allowed to ask it. So I had um, to wait and get in with my pediatrician, luckily, the very next day. But I think that just opens up hospitals to a whole host of legal ramifications that they sure. probably don't want to expose themselves to. And maybe the hospital right. administration doesn't realize that this is happening. So mm-hmm. if we can put together some adoption education and help people understand what the process is, what they're legally obligated to do, because maybe right. some people are doing it out of what they believe is, you know, fear of repercussions for not following the legal system. You know, mm-hmm. they're not the parents, she's the mom, she needs the information and if they better understood what the law actually said, then they could provide a better level of care for everyone involved in the triad. Right. Um, and then the second part of it was when my second son was born, because he was a result of a donor embryo, we were in the hospital and constantly being asked questions about why he looked different from us. Where did mm. he get that red hair? Even though my son doesn't have red hair. <laughs> mm-hmm. It, you know, it, it, when he was born, apparently his hair looked red to the nurses. And so they kept asking all of these questions. And it was like, you should have read our, our file probably before walking right. in the door. But in addition to that, at a very sensitive time, pointing out the differences between a parent and the child doesn't help with the bonding process. All right. And so, and that's a very important thing. I mean, we, we hear about it all the time in the news. It's something that's really, I think, pounded into women, especially mm-hmm. that the bonding process initially with your baby is so important. And, you know, all of the kangaroo holds and all the mm-hmm. things that need to happen in the hospital, skin to skin contact and all of that. It's really drilled into moms to say, hey, bonding is important. And when a nurse is standing there pointing out all the differences between you and your baby, 
and right. show why those differences are there, it really, mm-hmm. it makes you feel off. It just makes you feel yeah. off. It's a very off-putting thing to have happen to you. And my hope is that by educating people about third-party reproduction so that they understand, you know, what is a surrogate? What does that mean? What does that mm-hmm. mean legally? You know, mm-hmm. what about embryo adoption? When someone mm-hmm. adopts an embryo, are they're the legal guardian of the child? Yes, they are, in fact, the legal guardian. You know, <laughs> right. Why is the baby going to look different? How did you carry the baby? That doesn't make sense to me. And even though they're in the medical profession, they may not have the knowledge right. of third-party reproduction. So my hope is that you know we would be able to give them the information that isn't being presented currently to everybody, and mm-hmm. hopefully... You know, once they see that, they'll say, oh my gosh, I can be more sensitive to my patient in the following ways and realize that not everyone had a traditional, you know, go home, have a glass of wine, end up Mm -hmm. pregnant at the end of the night (laughs) and, you know, be sensitive to some of the other things that are happening along the way for these women. I mean, if you're talking about one in six women that are experiencing infertility, the vast majority of the women that experience infertility do go on to become parents one way or another. So mm-hmm. those women are all going to end up in a maternity ward at some point, whether right. it be for the birth of their own child or whether it be the adoption of a child that they're bringing home from the hospital. So mm-hmm. to be sensitive to them in that very delicate time, I think is really, really important. And I think education is really the, the key to helping Absolutely. everybody in that, in that room function better together. Absolutely. Wow. That is great, great work. And, um, it's so needed. Um, it's such a gap in care, um, for the whole family for everyone involved. Um, people are not getting the information, this information that they need to, to be able to at least support a, a healthy connection, a healthy bond, a healthy journey through um, through whatever the process is. Um, and I think you're, what you're doing is amazing and so, so needed. I really, really appreciate you taking the time to tell us about your story and your experience and Uh, what you've been through and, and how you're helping people around you. It's just amazing. Um, and I know you're helping so many people. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for your time, Kate. By joining us today and listening, you're a part of the growing community of people who are aware and concerned for mothers and families during this beautiful and sometimes very difficult time of life. Please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review this free podcast so that Mom in Mind can be found by moms, families, and providers who will benefit from hearing our talks. If you or someone you know is having a hard time, help is available. Please look for resources for help at momandmind.com, where you will also find links and information from today's episode. Thank you for listening and being a part of the Mom in Mind community. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. 
you get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips.